brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah. If, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not so good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special operations. Covert ops. Espionage. The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 228 of The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with David Park. Uh, our guest on tonight's show is Aaron Hale. Aaron served uh, in the uh, as an explosive ordnance technician in Afghanistan, uh, severely severely injured but made a, an incredible recovery there's a lot to talk about here uh and we're just really pleased really happy to have you on the show tonight aaron boss is lows <laughs> i uh i'm glad to be here thanks for inviting me on um really really pumped to be, be on the show thank you man thank you appreciate you having you here um, so, you know, I, I will ask you the first question that we ask all of our guests about your origin story. If you can tell us a little bit about your up, your upbringing and that path that took you towards military service. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you know, mine isn't one of the, you know, gung ho kids that played soldier boy, uh, but yeah, as a kid and just knew his direction. In fact, just the opposite. I was a Midwestern kid, loved my uh, childhood, adolescence, um, had enough natural ability, talent, um, to just skate by. <laughs> so <laughs> I was, I was really an all American slacker. 
and you know, B's C's and the rest BS. Um, so uh, when I got to college, everybody who knew how to work, you know, quickly passed me by, and uh, I soon found myself out of my butt. Uh, a whole lot of tuition pissed away and really embarrassed and trying to figure out what to do with my life. And so uh, I, one thing that I can do and, and have been doing for my whole life is able, you know, have this ability to just make decisions and act and go. Uh, and I love cooking. So, you know, ever, ever since I, I could reach over the counter, I loved, loved the culinary arts. I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I go in a whole other direction. Uh, I'm going to go to culinary school, except I need before I, I you know go to another college, another university, and try. Um, first, I need those internal, you know, the, the, the internal values, the core skills, work ethic, ambition, all that kind of stuff. Then you know, set set some goals for myself and be productive and also i needed to, to earn some more tuition money so that's when i decided you know the the military was exactly what could answer all of that for me i joined the navy in 1999 as a cook and they gave me everything that i was looking for the the early mornings the <laughs> fitness the uh work ethic and um a whole lot more so um, that's that's what led me towards the military it was kind of failing up and i found that soon right after right after basic and the navy's a school a cooking school i was in i was on shore duty in italy and I worked my way up to cooking for the commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet, uh, three-star in charge of all the Navy troops in the Mediterranean and Eastern Atlantic seaboard. And that was fantastic. Got to cook real food, got to uh, tour around the Mediterranean in the flagship. And that's not, you know, those those six-month Westpac cruises. It's three months or less maybe one or two months you hit three ports in the mediterranean run up the flag hit a you know throw a reception and then scoot right back to naples italy uh guy to italy but uh uh what, what, oh, was, what, what was that like nathan like uh some of the the differences just as a navy cook i mean it sounds working your way up i mean there must have been those times where you're cooking up slop for hundreds of sailors on the ship and then it sounds like maybe you had this opportunity where you were cooking like restaurant style food later on. You know, the truth is, no, I never did that. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I spent four years in Italy. The you know, first duty station was actually barracks duty. Mm -hmm. No kidding. They don't tell you this at a school. They don't tell, I think they switched the, switched the jobs around a little bit, but they used to look at it like hotel restaurant management on the civilian side. Uh -huh. So I get off the plane. They tell me I'm working shore duty instead of sea duty on board a ship. And, uh, so, you know, my sponsor met me at the, the airfield and I, for one of the first questions was, where am I going to be cooking? They're like, Oh no, we don't cook at sh on shore duty. And what do we do? 
you're going to be because you're the FNG. You're going to be night watch at the BEQ oh, at the funny. desk taking and trouble <laughs> tickets. Yeah, yeah. I worked my way up to like the officer quarters front desk, and then the maintenance department. So I was taking trouble call tickets from uh, the 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 residents and walking them over to the um, public works, the local national Italians. But cool thing about that was I was I was escorting these guys through the rooms and everywhere I went, como si dice, como si dice, how do you say this? How do you say that? <laughs> uh-huh. And I was learning Italian and drinking a ton of espresso in their office all day long. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing was I was learning Napolitan Italian, which is about the furthest thing you can get from book Italian. Right, right. And I was learning it from these public works roughnecks, electricians, plumbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so anytime I traveled, even off duty, doing like MWR trips out to Rome, Milan, that kind of stuff, I would try speaking the lingo because I was actually enjoying my time there. Yeah, but the, all the Italians would look at me and like what are you doing? What are, you must live in Naples. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. But it was it was hilarious. Uh, I gotta give a quick shout out to Augustus uh, Augusta Precious Metals, uh, sponsor for tonight's show. Text team to six eight five nine two or go to augustapreciousmetals.com and we'll uh, talk about them in in a few minutes. Um, well, please please continue, Aaron. Sorry for the interruption. Um, so you had to fight just to do your job in a sense like you had to work your way up to doing the job you wanted to do yeah that it's it's what i really wanted to do at the, at the time at least was cook yeah and uh, instead i was uh wasted away uh, at night at the night watch and then i was having fun hanging out with the italians but it wasn't really you know what you were looking for you know so uh the base commander would sometimes throw parties, little receptions at his villa and ask for cooks from the barracks to help cater the thing. So I would do, you know, I would volunteer in my off time. And it would, this was just to keep the skills sharp, uh-huh. do some cooking somewhere. And when it was time to PCS, it just so happens about 45 minutes away in Gaeta, Italy, there was a billet open for flag duty. And it was a special position which required letter of reference um, from you know somebody higher up. And because I'd been working for you know, the, the CEO and his wife, uh, I got that letter and got my foot in the door to cook for the Admiral. That's- and it's really cool about cooking for flag flagships is that's often the the that rung between you know the big big blue navy and places like camp david and the white house uh-huh. and even air force one uh eric can you because uh, we you're the first we've talked before about how hard cooks in the military work but you know, we've never actually had somebody on. Can you tell us a little bit about the A school? Because the basic skills, because one of the advantages that people don't know about in as a military, especially in the Navy, because of the different mess decks, that you can go on to very advanced training 
in, in culinary arts, but can you tell us a little bit about the A school? How long was it? And then like, what types of things did they cover over you know, in, in that school? Navy A school, there were two major areas of study. And I think it's about 10 weeks, I think total. Uh -huh. And eight of them were sanitation. Don't kill the sailors. <laughs> And the the other two, the other the other two weeks was were how to read and execute on the recipe cards. The it's like a publication, like an army reg on uh, army publication on how to make food. There's a recipe card for everything. If there isn't a recipe card, then it doesn't exist, and you shouldn't make it. And it was it was how to make it perfectly bland so everybody was pissed off. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I I almost got myself in trouble by making uh, guacamole not taste like well making making it taste like guacamole. Right. So sort of the opposite of like Hell's Kitchen or something like that, where everybody's tasting to be the most bland and unoffensive as you can possibly be, or inoffensive. Well, you know, it's it's the training school for yeah. the big Navy. And they yeah. want to make sure that, like I said, the cooks don't kill the crew. Right. So it really was how to make sure that, you know, everything about the sanitation standards and cleaning and food cooking temperatures, all that kind of stuff. And it, there is really quite a bit of it. And then the rest of it was... You know, just making sure you can follow instructions on a recipe card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then once you get out there, there really are a lot of opportunities for uh, chefs to advance into some really, really incredible billets and take some really cool schools. In fact, uh, every year, I think there's a joint, uh, joint services cooking competition, and it's it's on uh the like food network and stuff like that so it's pretty cool so when you took this uh billet at the flag position did they offer you advanced training before you went or did you just kind of go as as you were i went straight there okay i did get some training during and i also i was in italy uh i got uh the OJT type of training and um, off-duty training, just being in you know, being in uh, one of the, the you know the major centers of culinary arts, Italy. Yeah. The funny thing was though that uh, you would it, it, it's home ported there, uh, forward home ported in Gaeta, Italy. So everybody just it's like a floating office most of the time when it's in port uh -huh. and uh, the admiral goes in for breakfast lunch and close of business everybody hangs up their uniform and goes back out into the economy i made breakfast and lunch and then i was i was in a, i was hey i was done by like two o'clock 1400 i was gone uh -huh. to clean up the kitchen and um but the one major rule was the admiral said absolutely no Italian food. My American cooks are not allowed to make Italian food while we're in port. <laughs> Why would I have you guys cook that stuff when we're here? Right. <laughs> right. So I couldn't practice what I learned on him. Right. But you know, we get out to sea, of course. We got a uh, we got all three, actually four meals to 
uh, practice on the guy and the rest of his staff. So when you say four meals, are you including like midnight rats in that? Is that the fourth meal for people who aren't familiar with? Yeah. 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 We would do mid rats before, because even, um, you know, everybody, the ship runs and that was the difference between, it's it's kind of the difference in flagships. You've got the ship's company with the skipper, the CEO, and that's one whole command. And then you've got the fleet command with the, the admiral and his staff that's a separate command altogether so uh, uh it made for interesting rivalry sometimes being on the you know the flag staff on board the ship underway and you know they would be doing general quarters and stuff like that and uh running fire drills and i just kind of can i get by i gotta get up to you know officer country but um, uh, we we had, it was it was a pretty incredible time, and I learned quite a bit. And also, it was terrific having an espresso machine on board. <laughs> yeah, it must have been cool. That I mean, you were at that point exactly where you wanted to be, doing exactly what you wanted to do. Actually, once I'd reached, the, I guess it was, I guess you would say it was the pinnacle of what. Mm-hmm being a cook in the Navy uh, was going to offer me, mm-hmm. I, I became a little disenfranchised. I uh-huh. became a little restless. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I'd gotten those, I'd gotten those skills, that I'd gotten those abilities, those core values yeah. that I'd come for. I'd earned my, uh, earned the GI Bill, of course, now it's like five years. I was going to do the four now, and it's already five, six years later. And I love the Navy. I had salt in my veins. I love being at sea. I just, uh, and I also love cooking, but there was something about being a Navy cook that just wasn't testing the skills. It wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't challenging me the way I wanted to be challenged. Mm-hmm. Plus, I joined at 99, time of peace. By the time I had left the Admiral's uh, command, we were in two wars, right? And we've been out floating, doing our figure eights, and you know, in our box in the middle of the Mediterranean, and commanding, you know, the navy. But I, I myself, yes, all all of the jobs are important. Every role isn't you know necessary in the effort. But I was watching the war and wars in Iraq and Afghanistan on TV on the ship. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's, I don't know. It was, it would, there was something telling me I was not where I needed to be. I wasn't, I wasn't where I was supposed to be. So uh, when I got back to the United States, I volunteered to go as an individual augmentee to a, a provincial reconstruction team in Farah, Afghanistan. Now, of course, I'd still be cooking, but now I'm, I would be right in the middle of it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost. Uh, we were way out west in Farah, you know, south of Herat. It was so, so far in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Even the Taliban were like, you can have it. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was actually so quiet. Uh, there was nothing, people were getting in trouble for being bored, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but 
I've switched from cooking for the Admiral and 35 of his staff to like five, 600 uh, ISAF troops, Americans, Portuguese, Spanish, even some Italian special forces down from Herat. So I got to practice some of the lingo uh. <laughs> and uh, trade for some more espresso. And it was it was fantastic. Uh, it was a great experience. And that's when I met some EOD technicians. Now, were they uh, American? Were they Army? Were the Navy? Who, who who were the EOD techs that you met when you're out there? We trained up actually in uh, it was that was the funniest thing. A bunch of uh, Navy and Air Force components from all around the fleet, cooks, admin, you know, uh, civil affairs, all going to Fort Bragg for a like slap together basic training to teach us how to army uh-huh. and um and that's when i met a few i met a pair of uh, navy eod technicians and they helped us you know understand the uxo and ied threat that would be fa- we'd be facing out there or potentially if we ever left a wire uh and uh, uh, unfortunately, these guys were awesome. It was uh, Chief Miracle and AO in Poland. Those guys uh, were really, really cool dudes. Uh, but um, they switched out by the time we made it uh, in theater. And there was uh, a few Air Force techs uh, assigned to the the um, the FOB. And those guys rotated out, I don't know, every three or four months. But it was... A little bit after, I mean, I'd already already learned what EOD was about, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until I got to know these guys. And I remember one day I was leaving the the chow hall. I was heading back towards the barracks area, and these uh, Air Force techs had it just it was like dumped out all of their gear to do uh, maintenance checks on their everything, bomb suits, the uh, uh, robots, all the other gear testing batteries making sure everything was clean and it was like a cool guy yard sale so i went out there struck up a conversation learned you know just chatting away and learning more about the job you know the the tight-knit brotherhood the technical aspect of the job mm-hmm. you know the critical thinking skills you really need and the the fact that they're first responders on the battlefield they're running into the danger when everybody else is running away. Yeah. I mean, everything about it, it just clicked into place. And that's, that's what I knew I needed to do. So I put in a request with the Navy to go from cook to bomb squad. And what, and year, what it, year was that? It did. did it didn't go very well. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> no, they kicked it back, said no. Everything can be waived. Nobody wants to tell you. But... Um, my my rank in that job was undermanned. So not only did they not want me to leave cooking, I guess they liked my cooking too much. Now, um, but they also weren't going to promote me. Oh wow! So when when I returned from Afghanistan, my contract was about up. It was reenlistment or walk, and I took my service record. And what you know, I walked and went over to the army recruiter and told him what I wanted to do, and they walked me right in. 
Ah, they did you a little dirty there. That's too bad. Yeah, it was a shame because I really loved being in the Navy. Right. It was cool. Yeah, and you fell you fell in love with Navy EOD first and were totally ready to go do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, at the same time, not only was my job undermanned, but it was a transition period for Navy EOD as well. Uh back in the day, EOD wasn't even its own rate, like its own MOS. Right. It was a qualification, especially of, of suffix. So you had to come from different source jobs, source rates, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know, bosun's mate, master of arms, um, you know, not cook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I had a few things going against right. me. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron um, let me, um, I'm going to uh, do another ad read here real quick. And then uh, we, we jump back into the interview. I'm, again, I'm sorry for the interruption. Um, yeah, go for it. So our, uh, our sponsor for tonight's show is Augusta Precious Metals. You guys know what helps me sleep well at night? It's physical gold. I know a lot of folks out there are concerned about, you know, where the economy is heading right now and that it might take a dip. Um, so I decided to learn more about gold IRAs to help me diversify. Did you know that you can buy gold for your IRA in your 401k? Gold can't be tracked like digital currency. No one has to know what you're buying, and there's no way to print more of it. The best resource for gold IRAs is Augusta Precious Metals. Their track record is no less than phenomenal. They have thousands of happy customers, and they're the absolute best. They're amazing at what they do. Learn why thousands of Americans are getting gold IRAs as part of their retirement portfolios. You need to contact Augusta Precious Metals and get their free guide. So text TEAM to 68592. Again, text T-E-A-M to 68592 team to 68592 or go to augustapreciousmetals.com that's augustapreciousmetals.com so thank you guys for supporting one of the sponsors of tonight's show hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus so back to you aaron um, so tell us about how you made that transition then from, I mean, you talked a little bit, you took your service record down to the army recruiters and they were like, Hey, good to go. It wasn't, it wasn't like a smooth transition. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I took about half a year off and left uh, the service entirely. Mm-hmm. Moved to new moved to Brooklyn, New York. Really? And Where went, we're to, at. went to work. What's that? We're in Brooklyn. Uh, I was uh, I was looking for the most affordable. I was almost out by uh, Coney Island uh, by the yep. time I could find a place I could afford. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, Gravesend. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, it was right on uh, Ocean Avenue and Kings Highway. Yep. Right about there. But uh, I was uh, I was teaching built in lower manhattan mm-hmm. um so i'd take take the, the the you know the subway in and i was working with a buddy of mine teaching computer applications to the the corporate setting like city group and stuff like that uh and well, aaron, aaron you're just you're just one of those like uh what do they say like thespians like the type of person that can just like do anything what's that like the type of person yeah, that can just like, like like a jack of all trades yeah yeah or like you know, some people call that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so how did you, I, like he taught you how to use the applications or you had been using those applications and then you turn around and uh, like, well, where did you, you know, I had a buddy and, and it's, it's not as hard. I mean, this is, <laughs> I was teaching Excel to all the, it, it was like, I was, I was teaching the city way of formatting stuff that, you know, their new hires, which are all like all 1600 SAT scores in the entire room, you know. Uh, so I was just teaching them how to put that particular type of blue fade in the background and stuff like that. But right. the truth is, well, when I was when I was teaching these things, you know, you get Microsoft Project, Microsoft Office or whatever like that. And they somebody hires you to do uh, level one. You buy the level one and the level two book. Right. And you read it the day before and it's pretty straightforward uh-huh. and you just regurgitate level one. Uh-huh. And by the end of the day, when you have a couple of minutes left over or somewhere in the middle of the day, you just throw out a couple of pointers from level two and they think, you know, everything. <laughs> if, if they teach you, if they hire you for level one and level two, well, you take a couple extra days and then you, of course, you buy level three book and you do the same thing. Right. So uh, I learned it all on the fly. And it worked out pretty well. The only thing was, it was, uh, wasn't for me. And I knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wanted to go with ERD. But um, I, was, I was pretty pissed off about you know, not doing it in the Navy. Uh, Took to that little time off just to uh, you know, not shave and stuff or not, you know, grew out a nice beard. But then um, I decided, you know, I was going to go you know, go to that Army recruiter and get back into, into the fight. Yeah. So you hadn't been on like the delayed entry program or anything. You were just taking like a personal break, decompressing uh, and teaching Excel and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, my own personal yeah. delayed yeah. entry program, I guess. <laughs> so and you're earning enough money to get by in New York. Uh, it, it was actually a pretty cool experience. Yeah. Uh, definitely a learning experience, but I quickly got claustrophobic. I was used to wide open seas, wide open uh, deserts, wide open country of, mm-hmm. of uh, the, you know, the Midwest. And even going for a run in Brooklyn, you know, <laughs> you got to get, you go block, stop, go block, stop. Right. 
trip up a trash bag or a you know a dog <laughs> or something. Um, but you know, I went to the owner recruiter and they welcomed me in. I did do it was it was like a I didn't go to basic training. I did this gentleman's course. It was like a what was it like 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 a pilot program for prior service. It was so funny. All these guys have been out uh, for at least different service or out of the army for at least three years. Uh And um, because it was, it's all of the knowledge-based stuff, none of the indoctrination stuff, Uh you know, the dogma. So I got the, the knowledge I needed to go soldier and I got uh, the uniform, but I still felt like a sailor at heart. I felt like an infiltrator. Yeah. Uh, uh, then after after transitioning uniforms, learning some of the lingo, I went to the EOD school. And that was pretty cool. I mean, you, you train together with all the branches. So we all learn the same language language anyways. And we were all, you know, it's, it's every branch comes together to teach their EOD text the exact same knowledge so that I can be paired up on the battlefield with an Air Force tech, a Navy tech, a Marine tech, and we can all do the job together without skipping a beat. There's no friction, no, no lag time in understanding each other. We just know how to do the job. And... Uh, it also is great for actually when we have to do joint operations and there's there's no cross branch rivalries or anything like that. It, it, no click type things. We're all in the same EOD family. And I love it. It's still hard to get today. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the EOD school? How long was it? Um, you know, I, I think that for a lot of us who you know, when we watch EOD stuff, you know, on TV in a movie, if there's an EOD person, they're always trying to defuse a bomb. But really, a lot of times out in the field, you're not defusing like you're bipping them or, or whatever. But can you tell us like all the things you learned, how long it was, things like that? Yeah, I I went through, I think each of the branches have their own individual phase one and the armies used to be at Redstone, Arsenal, Huntsville, Alabama. They moved it to Fort Lee, Virginia. But I went through Redstone, and that's about 10 weeks of really the kindergarten of EOD. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like ordinance identification. What kind of, what if it, what does it tell you if it has fins or a pin or a, a parachute you know, different colors, uh, what do, what different colors or markings signify, that kind of thing. Electronics, basic, basic circuitry, um, physics, you know, the different forces at play if a thing is dropped, fired, thrown, buried, uh, and how the different forces uh, engage and activate the fusing that's on there. And it's all actually very basic stuff to then dig dig deep into, you know, the hundreds of thousands of different types of munitions that have been made uh, domestically and uh, abroad. And 
dance, you know, when you get to the joint school uh, run by the Navy on Eglin Air Force Base here in the Panhandle, you start right back from the beginning with electronics and basic physics, but you got a got a primer at your phase one school. Mm-hmm. And then and then you know we're all trained together and you can't take any of the material out of the school. So you train, you, you study all day long, you learn all day long. There's about an hour or so mandatory study hall right after. And then you got to leave it all at the school uh, till the next day. There's a, a, there's a an exam or a practical test on average every two to three days. Wow! And, and the 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 attrition rate in that school is pretty high. Just knowledge based. There's there's definitely a physical component to it. You got to be able you can physically fit enough to wear that bomb suit. And of course you got to go through the bomb suit test just to get into the school. And it's like a, like a PT test in the bomb suit, of course, but then um, the real test comes when, you know, they start asking you basic cognition que- questions to see if while you're smoked, you can actually think and you still maintain your, your basic critical thinking skills. And that's really what the test is about that you never quit and you can you can keep your head on while you're huffing and puffing and and then it's about basic maintenance you know pt maintenance while you get your your skull crammed full of knowledge on everything that goes boom from bullets to weapons of mass destruction and, and nukes that's amazing do you do you recall how much that bomb suit weighs So, uh, do you recall how much the bomb suit weighs? There are different models, and okay. the latest model I think is somewhere ninety pounds with the helmet. Yikes! Yeah, that's that's something else because it's not just <laughs> ninety pounds that like you're carrying like on your back in a focused place. Like you have to be able to lift your legs under the pressure of the suit. Right. Does like, it feel, does it feel like you're trying to you know render safe bombs like while you're underwater <laughs> at that point? Kinda. Uh, I don't know. The first few times was definitely very very uh, alien, very foreign uh, being in this thing. And um, over time, though, practice you just don't think about it. It's yeah. bomb suit time, right? You get on and get. Uh, and this, this, it, the transition is is pretty fast when you consider that what's in front of you is uh, could possibly explode and kill you. You don't think much about the bomb suit at all. You just put it on, <laughs> adapt. And, and at uh, this phase, when when you went through EOD school, uh, what stage were like the robotics at at that point? As far as using the robots and the the Johnny Five model to go out there and diffuse some of these things yeah i went through this is i went through an 08 mm-hmm. and this was just a few i mean iraq um you gotta consider you know where we were in, in that timeline of iraq and afghanistan and how slow 
uh, you know, the TRADOC and, you know, the other training branches of, you know, the military aren't to really catch up to, you know, the, the battlefield. And we weren't, we weren't too bad about it, but all the same, remember ordinances are bread and butter. It's in our name. And IEDs was actually still relatively new, though it was all over the, the both battlefields, mostly Iraq at the time. But um, we didn't have, uh, actually, IEDs was only about two weeks of the 43 we wow. were at Eglin Air Force Base. And that's for everything. There's really not a whole lot to teach when it comes to IEDs if you already know basic circuitry from the early stages, because the only, the thing about I mean there's there's of course lots lots to know about IEDs switches and you know fusing, but the the thing is about IEDs is that there's the, the it's it's made up of anything and everything and the limits to what how you can make an IED is is the only limit is the bomb maker's creativity. So how do you how do you really teach a class on that except you know, basic you know the the, the basics? Mm -hmm. So we learn a few of uh, the most popular switches, that kind of thing. We do remote um, re you know render safe procedures or disruption procedures we learn different tools to to engage these different ieds and robots wasn't really that important in fact everybody at the schoolhouse knew that they'd get plenty of robot time once they got to their units so maybe a few days out of that week they would play you know to get let let the uh the, the students go out there and play with the robots and, and and like you said, uh, the course was what forty three weeks long, but that's to teach the basics. Yeah, yeah, uh, the basic like basic laws of science, physics, electronics, chemical analysis, that kind of thing. Uh, we would have a few weeks of um, because everything's broken up in, into different divisions from biochemical to weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, uh, air is one of the most dreaded, um, most dreaded divisions in the school. And that's everything, uh, that's everything that could be inside or inside an aircraft or dropped from its wings or chaff flares, everything that has an explosive on an aircraft. And that's, think about it, inside a cockpit, everything explodes from even their, you know, <laughs> from on the rocket, the rockets under their seats, the um, the canopy explodes before they even let the, you know, the pilot eject. Um, the, even their harnesses have explosives in them that activated by sea, salt water. For so, the ink that yeah. goes out. Think about water wings um, too, probably. Uh, we're, yeah, we're, about we're just saying that uh, when you're talking about as far as the explosives in the harness, Dave was saying, is that does that deploy like an ink so that they can be spotted, or is that for their their like water wings, like the life preserver? That's to release them if they go unconscious. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and 
the, even the ejection handle that like starts all of the other stuff that's that's like a a little shotgun shell <laughs> uh, that that it's like a primer that sets it all off so imagine you're a student maybe halfway through the eod school and you face this thing that looks like a like a great big explosive cactus you know <laughs> that you're about to go hug um and everything has to do everything is remember your safeties right we have I think it's uh, 26 different safeties that we have to remember. And um, on a test, forgetting one of the safeties, each one of these tests, uh, the minimum passing grade is an 85 because you don't want to see student in a bone suit. <laughs> and uh, like a parachute and, like <laughs> we're not sure if we're taking a C on this. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, any safety uh, infractions is this—it's an automatic sixteen-point hit. Wow! So uh, when you come up to an aircraft and you've got to render safe, maybe the ejection seat because it had a quote-unquote uh, hard landing, you've got to pass everything that's mounted under the wing of the aircraft and say, "I'm recognizing." uh heat shock friction eject uh laser um emr static anything that might set that thing off for every single piece of our uh, ordinance and you can't miss any of them because each one of those each one of those safeties on each one of those pieces of ordinance is a 16 point hit wow and sometimes to render safe say the uh like the Gal 8 Alpha, the, the the gun on the A10, to render safe that thing, it's just sticking a like a cotter pin in in you know a piece of the the mechanics to just render you know to, to safe the weapon, right? But you got to get past all that ordinance to get there. Anyways, uh, uh, it's a pretty harrowing experience. It's pretty nerve wracking, but Did, uh... that's. Did, that's how you get did did you also your... get some extra love in the uh mop four uh protective suit during that course well the that's in the ieds mm-hmm. uh division part of that is the bomb suit test and other than that though you don't you don't put on a bomb suit for a known uh, hazard if you know what the hazard is uh, and you you probably don't need the bomb suit. Uh, imagine any time you're on deployment and you're on like dismounted patrol, you know, like EOD decks aren't going to carry that thing around until maybe they need it. Right. Uh, so bomb suits are a tool for certain situations, certain places and time. But uh, once you train how to use it and when to know when you need it, then you move on to the next division. Aaron, you know, you, you're talking a lot about render safe, which I think is, you know, it's what we normally think of when we think of EOD, right. Um, Finding something in a populated area or, or like you say, with the aircraft Uh, with 
you know, with Afghanistan, Iraq, obviously we move on to this model of, of, you know, disposal actually like rendering or not rendering it, but like blowing it or whatever. Did you guys cover much about demolitions itself? Did you guys learn how to place charges, you know, a lot, obviously you were already covering explosive theory, but were you getting the hands on practical, like a demolitions, you know, training in that also? Absolutely. Of course. Okay. In fact, part i mean a majority of our job is using explosives as a tool so and, and i'm not just saying slap a, a couple blocks of c4 and make something to go away bip blow in place right and you know making something go boom is sexy for the cameras and of course of course we like blowing stuff up right. but um but we also have explosive tools that I mean, no kidding. I have we, we we have tools. We can shoot a bomb with a bullet to make it safer, <laughs> and that blew my mind the first time <laughs> I heard about that. But we're using you know specific charges to shear or cut or impinge a piece of the fusing, or to cause it to low order rather than high order, to, to blow small rather than big, or to burn instead of explode. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, we're more like surgeons uh, when it comes to explosives. Now, of course, there's plenty of times when we've had to uh, dispose of just huge caches of, of ordnance. And a lot of times they don't really have fusing, so there's no reason to render them safe. They're already safe. They're just piles of explosives. Uh, we have to make them go away. And we'll, we, we have specific procedures for where and how to place the, uh, you know, the shots and tie it all in with you know, deck cord and prime it and all of that. And it's all uh, essential to making sure that it's done safely and you don't have to go back and do it a second time to clean up. I've, I have had to go back on a botched shots to go pick up blocks of C4 that were punted into the battle space, just sitting there for uh, the enemy to pick up or, you know, something went boom and like maybe, maybe somebody was trying to uh, bring down a mud hut Instead, all they did was brought down part of a mud hut on top of a whole bunch of unexploded blocks of C4. And then what do you do? Somebody else, you know, the army is not going to sit around forever as you, you know, pull brick by brick. But guess who wouldn't mind digging through the, you know, the mess to get at that explosive? So, yeah, it's, it's to be safe, not just in the immediate future you know immediate like like on the shot but it's to be safe to make sure we're not leaving anything behind for the enemy so it almost sounds as though you're saying 18 charlies were the bane of your existence Whoa, we're jumping <laughs> jump we're, we're jumping a, a few a few steps here but i wasn't gonna say anything <laughs> crabs over castles <laughs> P for plenty. It doesn't yeah. always work. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, I I wasn't going to talk about the sappers at all, but <laughs> well, whoops. 
<laughs> That's hilarious. So was there any part of, uh, you know, the, this 43-week course that you were just, like, blown away by that, you know, you're like, this is the coolest thing ever? So say that again. Was there any part of the EOD course that you were just absolutely blown away by where you're thinking, like, this is the coolest thing ever? I never imagined I would see something like this. I don't know. I mean, I was so amped. I was so excited about the whole thing. Yeah. I was having, I was actually having a, a really good time. It was hard. It was a challenge. And it was, it was, it was really what I was looking for, you know, uh, and I was around all these other people that were like alpha type nerds that were competitive, smart, wanted to take charge. And yeah, I was, I was, I was in this, it's just an amazing crowd of people to be, you know, these, these warriors learning this uh, amazing skill. So any one particular thing, I don't know. Um, it's hard to pick one out. That's awesome. And so after you graduate from the course, um, tell us about, you know, landing in, in your unit um, and what that was like. And when, you know, you came down in deployment orders, sort of what the next stage was for you. After I, I graduated from ERD school, I went to Fort Drum upstate New York and it was we immediately put in a, a, a company that was on the road to war and 2009 2010-ish is when uh, my company went to Iraq uh, I was a new EOD tech but I kept my rank uh, from the Navy so I went from petty officer second class to sergeant and that was tough because as an NCO, I was expected to get my team leader certification and the team leader is the guy that actually gets in the bomb suit, makes that long walk. He's the um, uh, most experienced, you know, the highest ranking guy on an EOD team. And some of these is, you know, privates had, had come up through EOD from the beginning and had, had far more badge experience than I did, you know, having been a cook for my entire military career. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a little resentment, uh, but everybody understood. I was, I had just had to work twice as hard to get up to speed. I was the, uh, I was placed as a fourth man on a three man team uh, when I went to Iraq and it's kind of like tits on a bar. Uh, I was a team sergeant that didn't need a sergeant. Um, but I was there, I was learning. My you know, team leader, the uh, other sergeant on the team, was teaching me as much as he could, as fast as I could I could, you know, take it in. And I think my uh, first sergeant recognized what was going on. So he pulled me from the team and he sent me to camp uh victory or liberty whatever um you know it went you know right by by up and in baghdad and i went to the higher level uh the counter explosives exploitation cell at task force troy and that's the uh joint iad operation cell 
that's where they take all of the the evidence collected from the teams off the battlefield and they 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 triage it and they examine it so but they 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 put me right in the triage the receiving uh, area and i would take these boxes of evidence the evidence kits you know baggies and and boxes of tape and pressure plates and batteries and debt cord and samples of all sorts of stuff and i would uh i would better package it for the next steps triage is really like um if you think of roll one two three in the first aid uh on a battlefield we we just cleaned up the evidence uh samples and then send them off to the different departments like uh, chemical analysis bio, biometrics uh, electronics that kind of thing mm -hmm. and from from there the, that and the storyboards would go to atf fbi dea uh dia and so on <clears throat> so i got to learn exactly how you know they wanted they wanted to see the evidence presented from the back you know from the front so when i actually did get my team leader certification had my own team i knew how i needed knew what uh the best way to present the evidence so that we could more quickly and more effectively get to the left of the bang if you think consider like you know the timeline uh you know from explosion backwards you got the bomb placer the bomb maker the bomb financer uh all of those guys and that's really what it was all about we want to get there before they get to bury it so it was an incredible learning experience and really handy when i finally did get my uh, own team in 2011 i earned my uh, team leader certification and was heading back to afghanistan for my third deployment second time as an eod tech but and second time in afghanistan but first as an eod team leader yeah I went to, we we were we were placed in support of the four four Cav Scouts out of uh, Riley, and we just it was really busy. We're a little west of Kandahar, in a little town called Siachoy. And I asked a Terp what that meant. And he goes, "I think it means cemetery," <laughs> and it really did. It felt like I was in Tombstone. I mean, it all there was just IEDs everywhere. Um, I remember hearing one guy say. Uh, when we got there, it's like around here, every step is a uh, is a decision. Every step is deliberate. Was this far enough along in the war? It's not just roadside IEDs, but it's also like as you approach a target, it's along trails. It, it became like increasingly intense, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And we we had we had all the, the the crew systems and the you know the armored trucks and of course we have to leave them all behind because everything's on dirt trails. So we have we have these metal detectors and and those those guys those uh, you know the privates uh, that get the metal detectors and go pulling. I got a hand of those guys. They those guys have some balls. They earn their chops and. Um, 
Uh, that was amazing what they, they did. They had some spidey sense sometimes. And um, they were awesome. I would try try my best to in, in educate and inform uh, these, these this component that I was you know, supporting, my team was supporting while we were uh, inside the wire the best I could. Any of those, uh, you know, uh, red sheets with the, the new intel that came out for the area, I'd get that out. Anything we were seeing as a trend, maybe uh, bomb makers, migration type patterns, anything like that, I wanted to train them up the best I could and get them all the information they could. And uh, even if it wasn't new information, I would just teach them some of the the, the, the skills of what what to do if what, what to do if we weren't around, or uh, how to handle certain munitions in certain situations. I didn't want to give them license to do EOD procedures, but we can't be everywhere at once. And if there's a dire situation, I want to make sure they were prepared. What were some of the ways that uh, EOD, the texts were being used? Because I know that a lot of times you guys were doing route clearance where you were ahead of an active patrol, you know, vehicular patrol. Were you also embedded in the line squads as they would go out? Like, what were the different ways you guys were being utilized? We we did quite a few, uh, quite a bit of each. We would go out. In fact, where we were most of that time, we were actually the the uh, the, the Cav Scouts were building up uh, command outposts all over the place, almost within visual distance of each other. Uh, to just to deny the enemy uh, any area, any terrain. So we we would walk behind the uh, we had uh, that was hilarious. We had the um, uh, was it uh, Puerto Rican National Guard engineers, you know, driving these the, the D two dozers, just cutting a road right through great grape rows and uh, poppy fields and marijuana fields, just digging a road straight through. And we'd walk right behind them. And then they would cut a 250 meter by 250 meter square. And then we would set up our, our cots or whatever. We just lay out there and eventually uh, HESCO barriers would go up around us. And the whole time we just, in fact, most of, a lot of that time, the the dozers did half the work for us. They would just turn up the soil, and there'd be uh, all you know vegetable oil jugs just sitting there in the open. And usually, they kicked them around so much that they were already separated. We just had to place a charge on them and detonate them. Uh, so that was great. But then, of course, with all these dirt roads cut. There was a lot of soft soil left, and you know that Afghan dirt. It's got three different forms. It's got the hard packed concrete like dirt. When it rains, it turns into that slick snot. That just walking from your your hooch to the the chow hall, you get six inches taller, and then um, it's got that baby powder moon dust. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to just, you know, all you have to do is drop an IED and the dust cloud will settle right back down on it and mm-hmm. bury it. So 
that was what was happening. And the uh, route clears packages were losing a truck on average every other day. Wow. Uh, so uh, the mechanics were busy. We were busy doing post-blast analysis. Uh, most of the time, it was just a post-blast analysis on a vehicle, thankfully. Sometimes it wasn't. So that's what we do. We, we, we were cleaning up all the IDs in the area. And uh, it, if we didn't get to the ID left of the bang, well, we'd do our best to analyze right at the bang. So can you, for people who... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You know, I mean, this is fascinating to me, but. For people who don't have any idea of like how EOD operates, like so, you go out there and one of the point guys on point <clears throat> see something suspicious. How do you proceed from there? Well, of course, we'll we'll come up on who whomever is the closest you know on the scene. We'll make sure that everybody knows they keep good distance from any suspect uh, uh, item, and then we'll ask them all the information we can, whether it's. Um, you know, some local, or if it's one somebody in our element, we'll ask them as much information as we can. We'll have them pointed out from where we're standing, if it's not too close, and we'll get as much information as we possibly can. Uh, then we'll make sure that everybody's in a safe standoff distance and setting a cordon around the area, making sure that we don't get any surprises while I'm focused in on the suspect item and everybody else's eyes are facing up and then my team and I will just get to work. Uh, if, uh, if we do find that it's an IED and, and here's the thing, if it's an unknown hazard, our number one approach, our first approach was always either a bomb suit or a robot. And since most of the time we're on, you know, foot patrols, dismounted patrols, a lot of our guys would be carrying one of those man-portable robots. So we send the robot down, 
more often than not, you know, it would turn a little corner of one of those three foot thick, you know, mud huts, and that'd be the end of the robot. Uh, <laughs> just no signal whatsoever. Um, but that technology got a lot better. But um, then it was a, 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 it was me doing a, uh, IED, you know, me walking down on the IED and also rescuing a robot. Uh, but then it was, it was doing whatever remote, uh, procedures I could possibly do. If it, if it was separating almost everything, I mean, I'm talking like 98% of the stuff we ran, uh, on that deployment, it was a, an oil jug with homemade explosive, a nine volt battery, pressure plate, and with your just you know particle board or plywood, and then it, it all connected with lamp cord. Super simple, super low tech, and really really hard to detect except for the nine volt battery because there's almost no metal there. Mm-hmm. So and the 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 Taliban and the insurgents, they didn't know this magic wand we swung, you know what what the magic was that found all of their IDs, but somehow they learned that we were finding the batteries. They didn't mm-hmm. know why, but what they learned how to do was uh, give they 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 did a little standoff. Uh, they fair they would they would fair lead the battery so they'd get a little more lamp cord and run the battery around the corner mm-hmm. so or it just run it off the side of the uh the the the, the, the trail and right in the middle of the trail was the ied mm-hmm. so there's almost no metal uh and that was what was getting a lot of us thank goodness uh maybe after say 24 hours the the dirt would start to settle and it would start to get concave a little bit so it began to show telltale signs of something to be buried there and then there'd be this little concave ant trail going off the side of the road but sometimes it was just fresher than that yeah. and it's really really hard to find i i think uh and you can correct me if I, I'm wrong, but I think they started doing that with their cell phone switches too. That once they learned about the jammers, they started experimenting to find out how far out of like oh, the jammers range the cell phone needed to be. And then it would connect the circuit back into the explosive that was within the range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in Iraq, especially, they were far more sophisticated mm-hmm. with their IEDs. I think I think I might have run one electronically controlled device in Afghanistan that whole deployment. Granted, I only got to spend eight months of the twelve months there, mm-hmm. but I wasn't I wasn't going to find too many uh, electronic devices. Yeah, uh, even in my last few months. Yeah, but um, I some knuckleheads because I told you they don't know the magic we were using to find those batteries, so they would they would connect the same kind of circuit to whatever they could the explosives they would find most of the time it was the oil jug with homemade explosives sometimes it was a pair one time it was a pair of 80 millimeter chinese mortars Mm -hmm. which are encased in iron 
So it was buried right in the middle of the goat trail, the, you know, this dirt trail with a pressure plate right on top, but it was pinging off the metal detector like crazy. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I can still see the ant trail leading off to the battery around the corner. I'm like, you, you guys, come on. Yeah. So uh, sometimes um, we didn't find them. Find them until, you know, with our metal detectors. And so some, a lot of times people find them with their feet. Find them with the what? Oh, with the feet. Yeah, like uh, like I did eight yeah. months into it. Yeah. Do you, do you want to, um, you know, if it's okay with you telling us about that incident and, and how that went down? Of course. Uh, uh, it was about eight, eight and a half months into the deployment. And we were starting to see the, you know, the end of the uh, end of the road with this deployment. Mm -hmm. Most of the guys had gone on their, you know, that two weeks of R&R. &R, and I let my whole team and most of the company go before me. I waited till the end, one of the last guys in the company to go do my two weeks of R&R &R because it was Thanksgiving and uh, my firstborn's first birthday. I only had a few weeks with him before I deployed. And I got to go home, see him turn one, got to see the whole family for Thanksgiving, gather around the table. It was a pretty fantastic, I call it my, my last page in the photo album. And then I got back on the battlefield. My team picked me up in my in our armored truck from Kandahar. And we we jumped in a supply convoy to head back out to see a Choi. And I wasn't, we weren't on duty or anything. I hadn't even reported back to the, the cop uh, command outpost. But we were there. We were in the convoy. And there was something found inside of the road. Um, so, I threw, you know, the, we set up that cordon. Uh, they asked me to get to work. And of course, why, why wait for QRF when I'm, I'm right here? Uh, that would be a dick move. <laughs> this ain't my AO. Uh, but um, I threw the, the luggage off of the robot, the robot out of the truck. It got to work. It found a pressure plate with a jug and uh, it pulled the pressure plate away and separate the components. So it was essentially rendered safe, but it couldn't get the jug out of the hard packed dirt. And uh, I wanted my evidence. If I could do it safely, then that's what I would do. So I grabbed my evidence kit and my metal detector and I jumped out of the truck and I started making my way towards it. No bomb suit because it's a, it's a known hazard. It was rendered safe. There's no sense in getting in the bomb suit. And I'm not going to suit up for every unknown hazard that might be out there. That would be silly. But about 20 or 30 meters from the original device, there just happened to be a secondary device that hadn't been detected until my metal detector was trying to tell me something really important. And that's when I got punted. The lights went out. I got kicked into the air, landed on my knees and elbows. I was still conscious. I couldn't see anything. It, it seriously rung my bell. I mean, like a gong was going off in my head. And I thought that my helmet had gotten pushed over my face. 
That's why I couldn't see. But the first thing I did was uh, wiggle the fingers and toes and knees and elbows and make sure everything was where I left it. And well, it was more or less. I could taste like explosive and dirt and maybe I was crunching on my own teeth. I don't know. Uh, it tasted like crap, but I was more or less intact, except I just got to, you know, move my helmet back in place and get back in the fight. Mm -hmm. So and I went to grab my helmet to find that it was gone. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's when I thought, uh, shit, a first sergeant's going to kill me for losing that thing. <laughs> but uh, the stuff that goes through your head, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, actually, somebody somebody asked me, what's the first thing that went through your head uh, when that explosion happened? I said, overpressure. But um, <laughs> uh, I did realize at that moment that something was uh, was really wrong. I'd taken it, taken some damage. Uh, I knew that the first thing that's going to happen because the, the training still kicked in. I don't know how lucid I was, but I was thinking, okay, complex ambush. Are, are they going to start taking pot shots? Are they going to start attacking with small arms? Is everybody in that security cordon now looking directly inside at me is in, in my team uh they know what they're supposed to do when a team leader gets injured they're going to clear a safe path for you know, the medics to come get me out and i decided i didn't want the my team in a potentially hazardous situation so i stood up and i started making my way back towards the truck only problem is I couldn't see. I had no idea where that damn truck was anymore. So I'm just doing this zombie walk across the battlefield, uh, probably making it worse for my my team to get me. But, uh, but they grabbed me, dragged me back to safety, and the, the medic starts comes running up, huffing and puffing, because he's coming from like 300 meters away. And the first thing he does is complain about making him run. I'm like, sorry to ruin your day, dude. <laughs> Uh, but you know that's you know warriors you know joking with each other <laughs> and same same time I asked my team like how's my face and somebody said well you're not going to do any modeling when you get out but uh you know the, the medevac chopper remember we were just out of Kandahar so medevac came in 14 minutes and within 48 hours I was in Walter Reed Bethesda Maryland um sitting in the hospital but and was that about the time that you realized, you know, what the extent of your injuries were? No, yeah, it's kind of a whirlwind. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was, I was, of course, I re received TBI. I would actually would have made it back to the states even faster, but they held me for twenty four hours in Landstuhl just to let the swelling go down, so mm -hmm. I could do the cross, cross Atlantic flight. Um, but uh, it was, it was. You know, hoses and tubes and nurses, doctors, uh, admin staff and paperwork. Uh, and, and thankfully, I was glad to have an excuse not to write anything because I couldn't see. Mm -hmm. um, people coming and going, of course, around the Beltway. And there's like 
elected officials and dignitaries, all you know, veteran service organizations, people coming and going. And also I learned uh, something new that when when you have 100% blindness, you get the added bonus of a sleep disorder because you can't reset your circadian rhythm to sunlight. Mm. So I was wide awake every night trying to figure out why I wasn't sleeping and zombie during the day just hoping somebody would like lock my door and leave me alone so I could fall asleep. Yeah. Um, but eventually, you know, I started thinking about and my situation and the fact that, you know, the doctors tried to save one of my eyes. The blast had take, completely taken one of my eyes, my right eye, and they actually fused my eyelids together. So I had this like permanent wink and a gun thing going on. Uh, but uh, the the blast, there was a piece of frag that cut right across the bridge of my nose and gashed the other eyeball. They tried to save it, but it was a no-go. Uh-huh. So uh, the blast had also blown out both my eardrums, though I could still hear, it was just less. And the blast had also cracked my skull. So it was leaking spinal fluid right through my sinuses and my nose. Um, they they did what they could for the burns and the scrapes and my eyes. Uh, they t- took a piece of my uh, septum and patched the cracks in my skull. Though we'd find out a couple of years later that it was never completely patched. But uh, that's all they could really do. And I would have to learn how to be a blind guy for the rest of my life. So that's that's what I did. Yeah. And after after you know checking out of Walter Reed, maybe four or five weeks later, uh, they sent me to uh, Tampa to the VA hospital there just for some scans and TBI. I had mild to moderate TBI. But then it was to the VA hospital in Augusta, Georgia, where they've got one of the blind rehabilitation units uh, in the VA. You know, the VA's got, I think, 14 of them around the country. And that's where I'd spend about six months learning how to use my accessibility tools, like com- talking computer and text-to-speech software on my phone and barcode scanner for the, you know, anything in the pantry. And of course, that white cane, the long cane for navigating. And uh, uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, things like learning how to pair your socks, and how much, how to how to gauge how much toothpaste to put on your uh, brush. Uh, the thing was, when I was still sitting at the you know, the hospital bed, Walter Reed. And I was pissed, man. Uh, these low-tech caveman, man, I was so mad that they got me with that thing. You know, we've been so highly trained with the best fighting force on the planet in history. And this. And I was mad at my, my I was mad at the army for some reason. I was mad at the president. I was I was mad at everybody. I was, I don't know why I was mad at some people, but they deserved it. <laughs> I don't know why. Right. Uh, it's na- it's I was natural mostly, though. Yeah. I was m- mostly mad at myself. <sighs> right. 
Yeah. But um, uh, it, was, it was it was always asking those questions, right? The, the why me's, the what if, uh, what ifs, what if I'd done it differently, taken a different route, approaching the IED. What if I, you know, set the robot out again? What if I, what if, and, and why why me? Why why did this happen on the? Well, I wasn't even supposed to run that incident. Right. I was supposed to just had you know all these questions. What is this happening to me? Right. Yeah. Why my eyes? Why didn't why wouldn't why didn't they like just take a leg or something? I mean, it was buried on the ground. Why didn't he? I, I was virtually untouched from my neck down. Almost not a scrape. I don't even know how that happened. But why? And like I could nobody can answer. I couldn't answer any of those questions. It's, it's they're impossible to answer. And it just leads to that downward spiral. Right. So right. I had to change my questions and it was thank goodness my, my family the military training you know the all that resilience training the welcome to the suck yeah in afghanistan um embrace the suck type of mentality you're here so you better do your best at it right right and i'm there in walter reed and i'm not the only one in that hospital that's injured there were a whole bunch of Joes and Janes in there that were all fighting their own battles. These warriors weren't quitting. Was I to say that I had my, you know, monopoly on pain or shitty days, right? So do I really have a good excuse to quit? And what am I going to do other than just sit here? I better get to work and get busy doing something if right. I'm you know, not going to allow myself to just piss and moan all day. So I decided if I was going to be blind, I was going to be the best, best damn blind guy I could be. Was there, um, I'm sorry, I, I just curious, was this all, you know, with the anger and the, and the, the non-beneficial questions that you were asking yourself, was there a particular moment or reason that you sort of turned around? I'd say it was incremental, but there was was definitely, yeah, it was it was definitely a one moment. I I loved it. It really paints a great picture, and uh, I didn't mention this, but when I was home on R and R, just two weeks before. Uh, you know, I visit. I was visiting family in the D.C. area, and I'd gotten word that another team leader in my company, a friend of mine, Kyle Vickers, had gotten injured. And we were right there, so I hurried over to Walter Reed. We got right to the unit, and we get to the nurses' station. Found out that he hadn't even gotten out of ICU yet, so we we're the first ones there that knew him and it, of course they wouldn't tell us anything about his injuries confidentiality but they said one of the nurses said well you can go wait in his room he should be out any minute now so i went to his room and so his bed was just waiting for him and right beside his bed was uh, a pile of clothes and you know one of those veterans organizations the non-profits come with you know shorts sweats uh t-shirts and then on top of this neatly folded pile was one shoe 
Okay. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, right? So then kind of gets wheeled in and there he is in the gurney. Yeah, under the sheet, you can definitely tell there's only one leg. And he uh he sees me and he's got a terrific personality, but I think it was assisted by the anesthesia. Um <laughs> he's you see this huge smile as he goes, Hey old dude, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh it might must have been a surprise because last time he saw me, I was in Afghanistan with him. But uh, he kind of looks at me conspiratorially and whispers, like, man, I think I kicked myself in the face. <laughs> and the worst thing you could say about it that day was that uh it ruined a terrible calf tattoo. <laughs> two two weeks later i'm right down the hallway from him jeez and i'm in a really really bad mood yeah kyle comes wheeling into my room one of the one day maybe two or three days after um, I've, I've been there i arrive and he goes hey old man give me your hand you gotta feel this i'm like Okay, I don't know playing that game. You know, I don't know. Right. Right. I am way too suspicious. Right. You guys know. Right. Next comes the homo like, joke, right? Touch this, right? Yeah. So he grabs my wrist, he puts it up under his chin, and I feel this you know stubble. He's like two weeks of growth, my man. Apparently. It is another one of those conspiratorial things, right? He's and I can I can hear him smiling as he's like, you know, the Marine EOD techs, they've got this liaison guy uh here at Walter Reed. So when they get out of surgery, the first thing the guy asks is asks is, How are you feeling? If the Marine says he's feeling fine, which every Marine's supposed to. He hit the guy, the liaison guy, hands him a razor and says, great, get back into rigs. We don't have that liaison in the army. <laughs> so grow your beard out. It's driving the Marine techs crazy. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't help it. You know, I, I, I had to crack a smile. You know, I, I'm sitting there going, going that downward, you know, spiral of defeat. Mm. And it was me beating myself down. And thankfully, Kyle pulled me out of it. But you know, he's here. He's 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 going to have one leg for the rest of his life. Uh, he's going to have to deal with with that. And I learned about about his incident later. And um, that's a whole other story. But uh, he he was here cracking jokes and playing games with the the Marine EOD techs, and he was making the best of it. And I, I had to snap out of it. I had to get uh, on his level, or at least come close to it. And I had to get, I had to get busy, instead of just sitting there moping. And thank goodness for for him and those other warriors, because uh, um, that was it was definitely a tough time. Yeah. What form did that take for you? I as far as getting busy, you know, get put uh, throwing yourself at something, and and of course learning to to you know, live with these injuries or, or live around them in a sense. Right. Um, how, how, how did that sort of, um, how did that progress take place for you? 
Well, you know, frankly, there wasn't really much for me to do at Walter Reed, except, mm -hmm. you know, let, sitting in the hospital bed and get healthier. Eventually, yeah, I mean, like I said, um, I was just hit in the head. And thankfully, you know, I mean, we hail boys are really thick Scott. It was the perfect place to hit me. <laughs> uh, but I, I was perfectly ambulatory. I could get up. I could walk around. They gave me a cane. No, I really didn't know how to use it. Uh, it was mostly just a sign for other people to let them know I wasn't getting out of their way. Right. Uh, but you know, I had I had my my family in town. Uh, my mom from Ohio. My my dad from California. My my aunt actually is in the D.C. area. So we kind of I would check out uh, in the afternoon from the hospital when the staff. Yeah, when the you know, regular doctor staff left and I would go have dinner at my aunt's house with my family or we'd go out to eat, stuff like that. Oh man, I went to a Dave and Buster's. That was a mistake. <laughs> oh man, blind and, and overwhelming like, right off the battlefield and all those, you know, arcade sounds. It's like, I have to leave. But uh, um, <laughs> other than that, it was just about they, they really couldn't do much for me they they were leading the way in prosthetics but i didn't need any right so as soon as i was healthy enough to leave the hospital uh i went to augusto and i started learning what i could learn and that was i, I just threw myself into this whole learning how to be blind and as soon as I got like the the my my iPhone with the voiceover, the text to speech software, and I learned how to search things on the internet, man, I was pumping blind keyword in plus outdoors plus uh, hiking, climbing, running, whatever, and trying to figure out how because I'm not the first blind guy in the world. How how do people live? How do people do things? And you know, there was a couple couple names that kept popping up. One was Eric Weinmayer. He is the, the first blind person to climb Mount Everest. I thought, damn, if I if he can do that, I could climb a mountain. So I looked him up and I went mountain climbing with him. <laughs> and there's a guy named Lonnie Bedwell, another Navy guy. So he didn't go blind in the service. He was turkey hunting and says his buddy Dick Cheney'd him. But uh, um, uh, Lonnie, Lonnie's the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. So I looked him up and I went kayaking with him. We did sections of the Yellowstone. It was amazing. And you know what? I mean, I was, I was fighting. It was, uh, it was the Army Ranger Ivan Castro. It was right at uh, Bragg's uh, Special Operations Recruiting Branch. He stayed on active duty, like uh, Captain Scott Smiley. Uh, active duty blind guys, they were working more administrative roles, but they kept the uniform on. I, I gave uh, Ivan a call one day, and that was hilarious. He, he is a way of turning all conversations into the Ivan show, but uh, <laughs> he's a great guy. He said he made... Uh, Made it a point every year to run the Air Force Marathon, the Army 10-Miler, and the Marine Corps Marathon. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I registered for all three of those. And then I got talked into 
by this time I'd moved to Anglin Air Force Base. They asked me if I would, um, and where I wanted to retire. And I said, I don't. Uh, and I, I asked them to send me to the UOD school. I'd start instructing. So as I was learning, I was instructing. I registered for those three races. I registered for the Pensacola Marathon, something local. And I got talked into the San Antonio Marathon. I don't even know how. <laughs> but before, I registered four marathons and the Army 10-miler, all within the span of four months. And I'd never run anything longer than a 10K in my life. So <laughs> more learning, more learning I'd have to do. Uh, um, I ran them and three of those races qualified me for Boston. Wow. What can, can I ask, what is the process for running a hundred yards, let alone a marathon right. when you're, when you're blind and you can't see the route? Oh yeah. Yeah. You gotta pay, you gotta listen really hard for the traffic. No, no. Um, I, at a marathon, I would just start yelling Marco. Uh, let's see what happens. <laughs> Actually, the, 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 the truth is, uh, there's a couple different methods, but what I started using was just a simple short tether. I would hold one end and my guide would hold another. In fact, my very first tether was a dog tug of war rope, you know, I'd hold a fat knot and my my guide would hold a knot. And I almost wouldn't have to talk. I would get all my cues from wherever that rope went. Yeah. And um, there was a couple different signals for like high stepping it or if we had to go single file. And then of course it was incumbent upon my my guide to just work around any like open manhole covers or something. Um, but that's, that's how I ran for nine years. I've been running marathons and then ultra marathons, uh, with a sighted guide or guides side by side. That's hardcore, man. Mm. Actually, it was, uh, just a side effect, uh, of, of trying to get ready for, for the mountains. You know, it's really hard to, to find a decent mountain to train on in Florida. But <laughs> uh, I would I would pack yeah, a ruck, uh, one of those expedition packs, and go find the tallest condo, condo building and go <laughs> up and down the stairs. And then I'd find a guide and go for go for run and train for these marathons. And that's how I... Yeah, besides yeah, kettlebells and stuff like that, it turned my garage into a pretty decent gym. Uh, it was running just happened to be a lot easier than getting to the condos or getting to an actual mountain. And just it was a great way to socialize. I mean, everything nowadays is a team sport. So I love getting out and running with locals. Um, and, and a lot of times I run with first time guides. They're like, how do how do you how do you how do you do this sighted guide thing? Yeah, it's no big deal. Hold this. Yeah. And and then um, you know, I've got a I got a, you know, I've got somebody trapped as I you know, I can talk to them. But uh <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were probably dragging the guide after a little while. Well, 
you know, it is that is one of the challenges and beyond, of course, the obvious is also finding somebody that was wanted to, you know, could do the same distance or pace that I was doing and our schedules match up. Right. So it's, it's some, somewhat of a complexity. Yeah. I would love to mention here that one of my friends, a blind uh, Marine runner who started a site, a, you know, a website, it's called unitedinstride.org. And that's where interested people, sighted people, couldn't go and find blind runners around the country, I think even around the world. And, you know, they might be in their neighborhood and go running with them. Uh, so I actually, at the time, reached out to Team RWB mm-hmm. and found the local chapter, went running with them. This is really cool. They started a Sunday marathon training run specifically to help me get ready for my first marathons. And they invited everybody who wanted to come out of all ability levels. And they had like a pace vehicle loaded with the refreshments and stuff. And more and more people every every week, every Sunday will come out and... um, would come and run and it, before long it wasn't aaron's marathon training day it was just training day and as far as i know it's still going uh, and it, it was it was it was great to be a part of something that grew beyond yourself you know grew beyond me it was helping others. Somebody, you know, I know more than one pe- person in that group was just getting ready for their first 5K. And that was, that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, that was, I, that was really special. I also want to touch uh, on, a, you mentioned that you were uh, allowed to stay in the army and, and instruct, which is really cool. And I'm, and I'm really glad that they're doing that. They, the army has gotten better about that over the years. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that, what that was like. Well, this was, I started, they asked me at first, right, at Walter Reed, uh, where do you want to retire? And I learned in that time that there's something called a continuation of active duty service or COAD for short. And you still have to go through the med board process. And that's uh, a nine months, a year long uh, as they go through, I mean, there's this huge review process. Uh, but once the Department of Army, Department of Defense, we have their findings, that's what they send over to the Department of Veterans Affairs as a recommendation for retirement and like a transfer from one department to the other. And that's when you can put in your request for a co-ed. So in the meantime, I can't just stay inpatient at you know, Augusta, you know, a, a graduated blind school. And then as soon as you're, as soon as you get to the health point where the mil- you're like, you're, the military can't do anything to improve your situation, I guess it is. Uh, that's when the med board process begins. Mm-hmm. So I, I asked him to send me to the EOD school. Now, of course, you know, the military does have these warrior transition units. They're, the army, and, uh, at least, did this. And it's like full, 
units uh, comprised of wounded wounded service members that wounded army wounded soldiers that um, their full time occupation their full time job it becomes in getting well uh, completing that med board process. So if they have ongoing treatments, that's the first priority. If they, then it's, you know, completing everything they can for the med board process. And if they're, if they're in everything along that ends, then it's, they're, then they're actually ordered to, uh, get an education while they're waiting for, you know, the board findings to be completed. Well, uh, I asked to go to work and go to the EOD school. And it was funny. I didn't realize what kind of red tape it would take to, they would send me to a war, the closest warrior transition unit. And then my place of duty and place of work is the red tape in all of that being sent to a Navy base uh, or a Navy school on an air force base in the army warrior transition unit. And so uh, it got so confusing that nobody knew who I belonged to, which is also cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I went to the schoolhouse. I started uh, started teaching. I actually went to the IEDs. Um, I went, uh, what I did was I helped build up an out of cycle training course um, in a lot of military schools. You know, it's there's cycles. You know, the classes and a pace that the classes go through. And if somebody, you know, miss, you know, fails a test or um, has some kind of a medical thing and they miss too much of their class, they can't continue on with that class. They can't miss that material, or they maybe because they failed it, they have to retake that material. They have to go out of cycle and wait till there's a spot opening in another class behind them to retake that uh, particular part of the course and continue on. Sometimes that's days, maybe it's weeks or even months, but when they're out of cycle, our, our EOD de um, uh, detachment, the army detachment there, the EOD school, didn't have a whole lot for them to do. They would put them on these, you know, working parties, you know, um, filling sandbags or doing base cleanup or something. Uh, have you ever read uh, Trident? Uh, Decent Redman, when he's at Ranger School, and he's one day he's picking up cigarette butts. Um, right. You know, we've got EOD techs that, with nothing to do. Right. So back in the detachment in the backyard we built this huge sandbox a training pit and started training the outer cycle guys wherever they'd wherever they were supposed to jump back into the class that's what we teach them and you know, keep them sharp on the, the material that they're about to go back into and i i kept them sharp on the ied stuff and i did that for about year and a half or so wow. and until my uh my you know the med board came back uh, of course findings that i guess blindness uh, means i'm allowed to leave the military in fact i would you're not even allowed to be colorblind and do eod work so uh 
at that same time, I was running this, I was, I was, I was taking time off. I was running these uh, marathons, I was climbing mountains. I was being asked to speak around the country and I was actually finding you know, enjoyment in sharing the story and doing these, finding these other accomplishments, these other challenges. And well, when I was sitting at the, uh, you know, the hospital bed, Walter Reed, I might've been in, you know, definitely was in a bit of denial. Like I didn't want to let go. I could still do this. I could still do something. I could still serve. I don't have to let go of the, mil- the, the, the uniform. But by the time the med board came back with the findings, the decision, I had nothing left to prove, mm-hmm. especially not to myself. Mm-hmm. So I retired. It's it's truly fascinating. In your relations in sort of in the blind community, what are some of the the biggest differences you find between like you know, men such as yourself, you know, especially the veterans who as adults, you know, became blind and then people who have been blind either since early childhood or their whole lives. Like, what are some of the differences there that you found? Some of the different um, understandings? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Like, because because there's sort of really two different sets of the uh, subsets of the blind community, correct? Like, People who have, who were sighted for a long time, um, and then became blind. And oh, people those, who have never... those misconceptions. Yeah. Well, the first thing is we don't we don't touch other people's faces. That's gross. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to touch your face, and you have no idea where my hands have been. These right. are my eyes. Remember, right? If. <laughs> Hey, if you ever see a blind guy at a like a buffet, just walk out. <laughs> just just go. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna be at. You know, it'll be me at the buffet, and I'll be just sticking my finger in there. And, and, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there were so many misconceptions, so many things I didn't realize blind people could do. Uh, for example, um, while in Augusta and learning how to be blind, there was this, and I, I actually never knew this was even existed, but there was a recreational therapist on staff. And this guy, uh, his old job was to have fun, basically, recreation. Uh-huh. So he, he would come into my room and say, hey, Aaron, you want to go golfing? I'm like, come on, dude. Like he's messing with you, yeah. You know what's the funny thing is, like, even when after you go blind, golfers are serious golf, like about golfing. You know how they get, <laughs> really? right? Even after we go blind, I there's there are two national associations: the U.S. Blind Golf Association and the American Blind Golf Association. Apparently, one faction uh, split off from the other because of difference in like the rules, like an argument of the rules. That's that. Like, they're, they're, these are blind guys that take golf seriously, and so. Um, <laughs> Then this uh, uh, rec-, rec therapist came in the room another day and he goes, hey, Aaron, you want to go for a bike ride? I'm like, come on, quit messing with me, dude. That's, that's not bike ride. <laughs> and apparently, yeah, like, yeah, blind tandem cycling is a serious sport. That's a Paralympic sport. I mean, 
there's real athletes, you know, that are blind and do cycling. Uh, when I, um, uh, when, when, when I got to the blind school in Augusta, I was just a few months behind Brad Snyder, who's a Navy EOD tech who had lost his eyesight. And, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's this amazing dude, but being a Navy guy, he's a swimmer, he's a diver. And, uh, when he got to, uh, Augusta, he would train in the you know the the, the pool nearby and every, every time i saw him he's like hey Aaron, you want to go swimming with me and i'm not i've been much of a swimmer in a long time and i'm like ah oh, blow it out of your drums i i have to wear <laughs> cotton balls into the shower i i can't i'm sorry I'm like Phew. but um after after he graduated from blind school he went to the London Paralympics and won three medals. Then he's been to the next two summer Paralympics and won more medals. I mean, wow. the guy's a heck of a swimmer. Yeah. And now he's doing triathlons. Uh, so there was, there was just this, definitely this misconception about what we're capable of. And it yeah. was just, for me, it totally broke through this glass ceiling and then i was just thinking okay i don't it's not that i can't do anything i just got to figure out a new way to do it and my whole philosophy was um you got to figure out it's not that i can't it's just how can i right right it, it wasn't why is this happening to me it's why is this happening for me what can i learn from right. And, and that's what I did. I started running marathons and I started uh, climbing these mountains. I joined uh, Eric Weinmayer on the 10th anniversary of his uh, Ever Summit. He took a whole team of wounded veterans because his dad's a Marine. And he took a whole team of wounded veterans up a 19,000 foot peak in the Peruvian Andes, called it Soldiers to Summits. And uh, I was on that team. Uh, the funny thing was, we started off towards our, our uh, towards the, the the summit uh, on on that you know the, that day at three four in the morning, and it's so dark. Everybody's complaining that they can't see where they're putting their feet. I'm like, welcome to my world, people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was an amazing experience, but then it was it was just. Okay, uh, nothing is off off limits, uh, except maybe helicopter pilot. But almost nothing is off limits for me. I just got to figure out how to do it. And um, then it was the whole my whole life became an, an adventure all over again. It, it's, I mean. It's truly fascinating. It's, it's incredible. It's a testament to you and, and all and everybody else, you know, every other service member, but but everybody else who is blind, like yes, things I, I, I would never even think it's about. It's so hard to imagine of all the senses of all the things. It it feels as though for you know, yeah, just it's so hard to imagine. 
what that well, would know, be. I saw, or I listened to, I'm sorry, I don't see much anymore. Um, but I, I listened to another podcast uh, and somebody was talking about it was a, a blind guy that was a, a food chemist. And I was talking about how most people, mo most humans get about 96% of their information through their eyes. Mm -hmm. That's not because it's it, it's mostly because we we've stopped you know we become too reliant on our eyes and we don't pay as much attention to other senses and that's that's what it's funny when people ask uh, if the other senses have gotten stronger uh well i'm deaf and you know the blast cut right across my nose i kind of have a diminished sense of smell which is linked to my taste um don't ask me, uh, but uh, I tell people, you know, if I need to navigate, I got to go, go down on the, you know, hands and knees and lick the concrete. But uh, um, it's it's true that we don't pay attention to our other senses. And um, every once in a while, it really is a good thing to maybe close our eyes and just take a deep breath mm -hmm. and, you know, listen really hard beyond that point of boredom because that's when we really start paying attention but uh i think everything was going going really well um i had done all these these ventures i was speaking i was, I was teaching for a while uh, i was running this marathons and uh 2000 summer spring uh of spring and early summer of 2015 were epic I I went to Colorado and climbed three fourteeners in a day. Uh, I went hunting in uh, Texas. I don't know if you guys can see up above over my shoulder mm -hmm. there. That dude. Um, I went to Yellowstone in Montana with my buddy Lonnie. Went kayaking, uh, skydiving. Which I don't know. That was okay, but it's kind of like sticking your head out of fast car for me. <laughs> um, and I was two weeks away from heading out to Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro when I got uh, knocked down to the mat again. You know, I contracted bacterial meningitis, and I was sent right back to the hospital. Uh, man, the the cracks in my skull uh -huh. that hadn't been fully patched. Well, four years later, uh, a, a path out is also a path in. And the bacteria crept right into my brain and was trying to kill me. Mm -hmm. And in the process, uh, I, I survived, but it had also stolen what was left of my hearing. And it left me completely deaf. So, you know, the, uh, when the doctor was breaking the news to me, it actually felt like I was underwater. Mm -hmm. uh, I was so congested. And you know, I had my, my mom in the room, my, my girlfriend in the room, and I talked to this doctor. I was like, Doc, what you're telling me is I'm going to be completely 100% blind and 100% deaf. You mean I'm never going to have to pretend to pay attention ever again? 
silver line and everything. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I blame the meningitis, but I didn't. I didn't hear my mom or my girlfriend laugh. But um, I, even though I really do like using humor to diffuse the situation, man, yeah, it was that was awful news. Yeah, yeah. It was a kick in the balls. Yeah, man, I was I was just hitting my stride. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. I was I was just I was I was on my way to mastering this blind thing, mm-hmm. and uh, there I was, and also just like the blindness had an added bonus gift, the because I lost um, those inner ear, the little hair follicles in your cochlea, that also I also lost my vestibular balance, the uh-huh. inner ear gyro, gyro. Mm-hmm. so I lost I lost my sense of balance. This is like vertigo, but weirder, because it was like always. So, um, and we thank goodness for those handicap rails in the in the bathrooms, because I would fall right off the toilet. I came home in a wheelchair, and man, I was passed again. Is the same calling my my demons, the what ifs, the why me's. I'm like, when has this? guy paid his fair share when is enough enough you know when has this soldier sacrificed right you know when can you just give it to another guy you know yeah Um, one more thing taken from you yeah Hmm. so i'm sitting there like 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 at the counter uh in my kitchen right holding on to the counter to not fall off the stool and there would be a chance I could regain some of my hearing with a cochlear implant, which is not a hearing aid. Like my ears are turned off permanently, but uh, there'd be, I'd have to wait till the meningitis, like the infection cleared up. Then they would do surgery on my right side, the more damaged ear. And for anybody watching, I'm not wearing one right now because uh after getting the surgery waiting weeks for it to heal up then getting the the process external processor turned tuned in found out that it didn't work it was just too much inner ear scarring for the the implant to work then uh, i have to start the process all over with the left ear and it was over six months from you know, infection to the first sound, whatever you want to call it. It's a digital signal sent right to my auditory nerve. My brain had to learn how to hear again, a different way. Yeah, how to interpret this different sound. And uh, it's nothing like the real thing. It's kind of like calling a friend at, uh, at a restaurant and he just puts it on speaker and puts it in the middle of the table. You just hear every imperfection on the table, around the table, clinking, the other conversations. It all kind of mixes into a wall of sound. Yeah, but it's way better than the alternative. Right. Because for six, six months, I was locked inside my body. It was just trapped. Silent, dark, could not get a message in. I was thinking, damn, I should have learned Braille at blind school. But all that tech is just it made me lazy. It's hard to, you know, it's funny to say. Right. right. Um, 
But it's all, like, you I, know, the only thing I can like even think the liking it to is it's like you're in a submarine by yourself with no sonar, mm -hmm. like just isolated. Mm -hmm. And for a social guy like me, that sucked. And so, I mean, how frustrating and lonely it is. And, uh, you know, people, we, we went through the, the whole COVID quarantine era, you know, that period. People were complaining about the isolation. Like, that's nothing. Right. Uh, but sitting there, again, pissed off. And this ironic thought came into my mind it was like for four years i've been talking about triumph over tragedy and success through struggle and all this kind of stuff and god was telling me to put my money where my mouth was I'm like jerk <laughs> <laughs> but uh it was it was like okay well prove it and i just remembered all the stuff that i went through the first time and and I just like I told myself like this isn't your first rodeo you've already done it you you know how to do this and I remember um, just just as in like an EOD team we get this like a tricon or quadcons shipping container full of tools from the bomb suits the robots and hazmat kits and all sorts of things but then you get it. On, on deployment and you get that armored truck and it's just not as big as the shipping container and you can't fit all of your tools so this one three-person team has to do uh the prioritize what is most likely to be used in this uh, battle space and then leave some of the tools behind and then, of course, we're going on these dismounted missions, you know, walking on foot on these dirt trails. And you only you can only bring what you can you can hump on your back. So you got to leave a lot of tools behind. And I love how uh, was it General Jim Mattis put it in Call Sign Chaos, said it at least in the Marines, you know, things being hard were never a good excuse for mission failure mm -hmm. and you know I've, I've got a family i've got a son I've got this this amazing girlfriend um i've got i've got that my fellow warriors to think of you know that my life doesn't belong to just me and i'm responsible to them and for them and i gotta figure this out so i left some tools behind Mm -hmm. and the mission continues so i did what anybody in my situation would do we started a fudge company <laughs> what besides getting on the treadmill and holding on for dear life as i just hit uh it's the vertigo hit the you. And quick start button just walked half a mile an hour mm -hmm. um i was i was also uh i was also taking my trekking poles that i was using in the mountains and i did this weird daddy long leg crab walk thing out to my my mailbox and back and i'd be exhausted but i would i would do it every single day a couple times a day 
Then we'll go a little bit further, go a little bit faster on my treadmill. And at the holidays were coming, Thanksgiving is around the corner. And I decided to stop worrying about myself. So stop thinking about my situation. And I was just going to throw a huge Thanksgiving feast. So I started cooking weeks in advance. I started making the cakes and the pies and cookies, just throwing them in the freezer until the day. And I started making batch after batch of fudge, one flavor after another. You know, the, 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 the combinations were infinite and I was going to explore them all. And I just, I just kept doing it. I was throw nuts in and spices in. I go to the liquor cabinet and dump a little there and dump a little in the mouth. And, and, uh, Michaela, uh, my now wife said, she noticed two things. One was I had a smile on my face for the first time in six months. And two, the fudge was piling up. <laughs> so she, she snuck it out the front door like you got to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But uh, uh, she she was giving it away to friends and family, friends and neighbors and whoever. And a couple of people came back and said, yeah, hey, this is pretty good. Can we buy some for birthday or something? Party, office party. And the capitalist in me said, well, of course you may. And all of a sudden we had this business. And it's so funny. And for like just months into it, uh, I, um, you know, that home gym in my garage, I had, you know, line in line. I had the, 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 the treadmill, the rower, the stationary bike, mm -hmm. and, and then the conveyor belt, uh, shrink wrap machine. Uh, but it was, it was something to do. It was a project. It was a challenge. And uh, we threw an awesome Thanksgiving. I was happy. We had even some of the stranded uh, EOD students that, you know, didn't have enough leave days or maybe money saved up for Thanksgiving or saved it for, you know, the, you know, Christmas or New Year's. And the, 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 during the holidays, the base is shut down. So we invite a few students over and share our table. And it was great. It was fun. I didn't worry about not hearing. And um, the fudge business started taking off. I started running again. And a year after the meningitis, I ran my hometown marathon in Akron, Ohio. Wow. The same week of my 20th high school reunion and got my first sub four hour marathon. That's pretty cool. Uh, that was, a, that was a, an That's awesome a, Unreal. And Aaron, I would like to take just a moment to um, put a pin or, or point out that um, I think you mentioned a, a little bit before we started recording, actually, had you been a World War II veteran or a Vietnam veteran, you'd be in a very different place um, because medical science has advanced so much um, mm -hmm. over the decades. Um, I, I'm just interested to hear kind of your, your thoughts of, you know, I, I mean, in some sense, when we start talking about ocular implants and all these, it, it almost is like a miracle, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the technology, science, medicine, it's absolutely amazing. This cochlear implant is literally uh, implanted in my head and it's an electrode that goes into the co cochlea bone and in the inner ear. And there's an electrode that connects to the 
the branch that basically the uh, there's a bundle of nerves that's the auditory nerve and if you can imagine like a big uh, trunk that goes into smaller and finer roots until it goes into the cochlea and becomes the really fine hair cells that are the actual things that pick up the uh, sound and then bring it, of course, into the brain. Well, the cochlear implant is the electrode that attaches a little higher up on the uh, the trunk, the, the roots. And um, the way I imagine it is it's not it's, it's just not as sophisticated a sound. They're, it's getting better all the time. And the processor is actually pretty smart, has different types of modes. Um, but it, it's more like, in fact, it, it's like when they first turn it on, they only they can only give you the primary colors of sound. Mm -hmm. It's a very limited amount of, of, of data. So your brain can start learning. And then every few weeks, you go back into audiology, they tune it in with like the soundboard and the computer, give you a little more data, and you learn a little bit more. And they keep tweaking it until you get something that resembles sound. But like I said, it's kind of like you know, trying to listen to the whole world through a drive-through speaker. But it's 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 amazing. You know, 40, 50 years ago, I would have been pulling the full Helen Keller. Uh, instead, I'm, you know, connected via Bluetooth to my phone, my computer. We're talking to each other via the internet. It's absolutely amazing. Of course, it's also 101 ways I could screw something up. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, definitely way better than the alternative. Yeah. Do uh, do we have any questions for Aaron? <clears throat> we do. Um, let's see here. Let me switch over real quick. Um, Aaron, where, where can people like find you right now? Um, if, if they're, you know, any of your products, any of your social media, anything like that. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I have a podcast point of impact with Aaron Hale and you can find that at point of impact pod.com or on any of the major, you know, podcast outlets and on YouTube. And you can find me on uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, I think. I don't know. Instagram, I'm not very good at taking photos. But uh, that's at A. Clay Hale. And, uh, of course, the main thing is the uh, the podcast. And then you're also, uh, in your bio, didn't I read some, uh, you're also involved or you started a charity for building homes for veterans? Absolutely. Well, I am an ambassador and advocate for uh, a terrific organization called Building Homes for Heroes. And that's buildinghomesforheroes.org. Uh, they're the ones that build uh, or adapt, you know, specially adapted homes for severely wounded uh, service members, veterans, first responders, and Gold Star families, uh, like this house I'm in right now. And that's the organization I ran to raise money. I ran Badwater 135 this last this July for to raise money to, to raise money for building homes for heroes. Uh, so everybody, please check that out. Buildinghomesforheroes.org. Look, if you got a few bucks, it doesn't take a lot to help out. Uh, 
you know, and a couple we'll, coffee. We'll or, have a we'll have a link down yeah. in the description for you guys um, if you're it, looking for Can it. you can you tell us sort of like how your house is set up for you in particular that that helps that helps you? You're blind. You're effectively deaf except for the cochlear implant. Like, what are the things that people might not know of or that that help you know that help you? Well, could others help me? No, no, I, I'm sorry. In your home, like, what are the sort of accessibility? Uh, the, that was, it's actually funny because it was right, they found me right after I left blind school. And they asked, how do we, we I don't think we've ever adapted a home for the blind. How do we do that? What kind of special adaptations could you use? I'm like, I don't know. I've been blind for like 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and this was also uh, almost 12, 10, 12, 11 years ago. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of the smart stuff. Uh, it wasn't as pro prolific as it is now. So they put in a talking thermostat, but you still had to go to it and press the buttons and stuff and just told you what, you know, um, they did put different flooring in every room. So as I crossed the threshold from one room to another, I could feel it in, in my shoes, my feet. Um, one special adaptation really had nothing to do with blindness or not a whole lot, but I asked him to put one of those pot fillers over the stove. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the cook guy always wanted one of those. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there wasn't really a whole lot of adaptation for me. I was just extremely grateful that I got just an incredible home in the Florida Panhandle, mortgage-free, and uh, just uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful gift. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, everybody, please check that out. Building homes for heroes, uh, right? Building homes for heroes. Dot org. Um. So, uh, Luis Vasquez, thank you very much for your donation. Here's his question. What is your favorite Italian dish to cook, and what's the recipe? <laughs> uh, well, uh, do you want pastry? Are you talking dinner? Are you talking breakfast? Uh, I could, I, this could fill an entire uh, episode itself. I think my, one of my favorite go-tos is uh, spaghetti carbonara. Very simple. Yep. And very delicious. Uh, essentially, it, you can use pan, pancetta or uh, another type of Italian, you know, cured ham, bacon. The bacon. You're but right. really any kind of bacon will work for uh, spaghetti, a little oil, garlic, salt and pepper, one egg, and you've essentially got it. And you can uh, customize it all you want. I've had some fantastic wild boar and truffle uh carbonara so it's uh definitely open to customization but it's really simple and always delicious um <clears throat> sean walter thank you very much great chat aaron just mentioning creating out of cycle training courses for eod techs why wasn't that institutionalized uh cost personnel cost question mark personnel question mark like why wasn't that institutionalized from the beginning last question is what the the out of uh cycle training that you help create why wasn't that 
institutionalized from the beginning. Well, I'm not sure why it hadn't begun until, you know, I was there. I wasn't the one who dreamed it up. I just had to be there when it was, um, when it when it started and helped, helped build it up. But, you know, as in life, the service, had, even over, you know, a couple hundred years, uh, we haven't gotten all perfect. And uh, it takes a, you know, just one person to say, you know what, we can do something a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so a few Joes, a few students that we weren't serving, and we're just sitting around getting getting a paycheck, but actually not getting better, probably getting worse by sitting around doing nothing. And so, you know what we can do? Let's, let, let's help them out. And let's make sure they're earning their paycheck. But, uh, um there's always a way to improve the situation if we just look around uh thanks a dog point thank you very much did your eod unit have its own culture did you guys complete or compete to defuse the most bombs or have bomb jokes what kind of stuff is in the team room <laughs> Of course we did. There's always competition. There was always practical jokes. Uh, we did the practical joking was one of the big things. Um, you, you know, our electronics class, uh, we would get, we, we would build a circuit using the capacitor from a, you know, one of those disposable cameras, if you could even find those anymore. But uh, you you charge up the flash, and then uh, we do like those little gator clips on each of the um, anode cathode of the the capacitor, and it takes basically you know you either hook it to a circuit, or you just complete the circuit with somebody's skin uh, and turn it into a taser. Yeah, so. So what we would do is we would uh, conceal this little. Uh, flash, you know, disposable camera, um, taser thing all over the place, especially under people's chair arms. So, if, you know, they grab each arm and there's a, a lead on either on the underside of the armchair and zap, they just completed the circuit. And so every once in a while, you'd see somebody jump. Uh, and everybody start cracking up, but it's it's pranks. But then we're always it, it was it's like that mentality where you um, always always trying to find a way to kill each other and think of new ways to build our own IEDs so that we're better at building them and dismantling them than the enemy. Mm -hmm. Plus, chucking your body is hilarious. Right. <laughs> um, and also, Dog Point, thank you very much. Could you describe your experience diffusing your first few bombs? How did your reactions uh, before your, after and during change as you became more experienced? Yeah, there's definitely that uh, nervousness, excitement of being uh, a novice. So we're just, we trained so hard and I'd spent time in Iraq and then 
had spent time stateside working um, stateside response, you know, just things and, you know, old things of TNT from, you know, the farmer's, you know, barn to something grandpa brought back from, you know, the old war as a souvenir. And I'd had, had practice on some of these things before getting out to Afghanistan and, you know, you know, hit the prime time. But yeah, that, that first time, you're pretty nervous. It's good that we do that right seat, left seat thing. You get to be right there next to somebody who's been doing it for a while. And then they watch over your shoulder as you do it. And then, yeah, you know, the last handshake, high five, whatever, fist bump, and it's your AO. And by then, pretty comfortable in um, in the role. And before before you knew it, we were really, you know, running and gutting and doing doing tons of these things every day. So it never it never gets boring. It never never really. You shouldn't ever get complacent or anything like that. Um, they're explosives, right? Who knows if that if the next next one just goes wrong? So you're always alert, but um, you get more comfortable in your own skills, right? You get, become you, you trust yourself a little bit more to be able to handle the situation ahead and. It also is all about trusting your team and their abilities and you know, the other resources, you know, the other team, you know, the key players on the battlefield and battle space. And there's a lot going on there and there are a lot of resources at your disposal. You just got to remember that all of that is part of your situational awareness. And Aaron, this question is for me, how horrible is the Hurt Locker and why? <laughs> God, I don't get me started. Man, I don't even call it that. I call it that ouch closet or pain cabinet or something. Um, it was so funny. You know, I was I was at the FBI uh, anti-terrorist office in in Manhattan. You know, that Joint Operations Center there, and somehow that movie came up, and I'm like, I was just complaining about how stupid it made us look, and the guy is like. Have you ever watched a movie with an FBI agent in it? They <laughs> make it make it all of us look stupid all the time. So welcome. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. The, I'm like, yeah, you're right. You guys look awful. Yeah, I was introduced. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, no, no. It's just the you know who who picks up. It was like five one five fives all daisy chained together with dead cord. Who just picks them up? By the way, you can't do that with one arm. Yeah, he's throwing smoke between him and his like security forces. Like, I just I had a couple of civilian friends like introduce me to that movie. They're like, oh, you got to watch this. It's so amazing. And I was like so angry during the entire movie. You like, stop. you guys think this is good? There, 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 there is one scene in that movie that I, I liked that I could relate to. And this the scene where he comes back from Iraq and he's in Walmart, the grocery store, and he's just completely overwhelmed by all the lights and all the the, the like super abundance of it. Right, like 
And I had that exact same experience, like standing there for like 45 minutes. Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Like, what am I doing? And just left. <laughs> it was the, it was the only, the only piece of truth or yeah, you know, yeah. truism. Now, what I didn't understand was it like, I don't, I don't know. Even if you put aside all of the, uh, artistic license with the operations of EOD. It it was a terrible story. It didn't. It, it was so disjointed. I didn't yeah. know what was going on. Like, yeah, there was the. It just went from one stupid act to another. There was no plot at all. Who was he fighting? What was the what, what was the meaning of any of it? He just did this, did that, said something stupid. Um, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die comfortable. And then he's staring at some guy holding a battery or a cell phone or something. They have a meaningful moment as they look broody, broody at each other. And then he's standing in a grocery store and then he goes back on the planet. Yeah. This, this didn't make any sense to me. Like, <laughs> it was a ter- terrible, terrible story. Yeah. Aaron, as, as we as we wrap up here tonight, is there any uh, questions that we failed to ask or any final thoughts that you want to throw out there? Anything you think we missed? Uh, no, you guys have let me talk far too long. Um, I really do appreciate you having me on, and and you know have, have your ear and your audience here for a little while telling my story. I hope uh, it was worthwhile. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, I know I am. Sometimes it's not the best day, but most of the time I love my life. Uh, all the time I love my life. Most of the time I'm having a great day, and. I'm just doing it because I love my fellow, you know, my service members, love the, you know, the veterans, my family. Uh, love getting out there, running, doing adventures, talking on my podcast, or you know, making fudge or investing in real estate. Um, all of it is a is a really cool challenge. Every day is a new opportunity, and I'm glad I got to share a little bit with you guys. Well, well, thank you for so much for coming on the show and sharing it with us. I mean, it's a it's a great story. I mean, it's a great life, and I really appreciate you kind of like giving us a sort of like very personal insights into it. We deeply appreciate it for sure. I, I didn't even mention that my wife and I had identical twins, so I wouldn't be the only one that's confused. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I there are a couple of things that have passed by in the sense of. You went on your first hunting trip and you, or you went on a hunting trip, you have the trophy behind you and you didn't Dick Cheney anybody. So Dick Cheney really has no excuse. <laughs> Nobody's going to know about that in a few years. It's not going to be funny. What are you yeah. talking about? Who the hell is Dick Cheney? Maybe they'll Google it after they listen to this podcast. Oh, he's been. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Have to tell him. Uh, and then I think that, you know, with, you know, you're running, you're mountain climbing, you're kayaking, everything you're doing. The only with with Jack and I both being comic book geeks, the only question is when are you going to don a mask and start fighting crime? It sounds like you're ready for it. So after uh, um, Badwater, I don't know. I'm just taking a little time off, let my <laughs> toenails grow back. Daredevil um, did it, man. You know, uh, my wife and I really love. Um, doing the uh, um, fixer upper houses, turning them into rentals mm-hmm. and building, building a portfolio. So I really think I'm just going to focus on business yeah. a little bit more, do the maintenance, maintenance miles uh, and, you know, stay fit. 
I'm definitely not going to be able to stay off the road for very long. I'm probably going to find a pretty cool uh, ultra marathon out there first fairly soon. Awesome, man. Amazing. Yeah, please, please stay in touch. And, um, you know, we're happy to promote some of these things and put them out there as they come about. Um, and again, just thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. And uh, for the, uh, everyone out there, we'll see you guys on Friday with uh, Tommy Shook, uh, inductee into the Ranger Hall of Fame, had a very long career. Uh, we're excited to talk to him this Friday. And Aaron, you can hang on for a second and everybody else 